Our text is Romans 16, verses 21 through 27. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray that he'll bless his word to us now. Father in heaven, we can do nothing apart from you. We cannot preach, we cannot hear to any prophet without the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And so we're asking now for that ministry, that your spirit would be at work in us and among us and bless the proclamation of Christ through the Holy Scriptures. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, bringing to an end this morning a project that's uh, been five years in the fulfilling. I started preaching through Romans five years ago on the 24th of June, 2018. And of course, I began the series in another church. I began the series in the church that I formerly served in Stuttgart, Germany, and um, preached in the evening services uh, partially because uh, in the evening service, our practice back in those days was, was a, a German speaker would stand in the pulpit with me and phrase by phrase would translate the sermon into German so that when the audio was posted to the internet and was out there for the world to hear, they'd get the German and the English version of the sermon. And so I was thinking of it at the time as what would be, because we knew already that we were going to have to leave Germany this is going to be my, uh, my going away present to Germany. Um, I went back and I figured out that if we had stayed a little bit longer, I would have been able to finish Romans over there by the summer of 2020. But in God's great mercy, he brought us back so that both Hillary and I could get settled here and the new pastor of the church in Stuttgart could get settled there before all the chaos of COVID broke out. And I praise God for that to this very day. But uh, when, when we arrived and I began serving as your assistant and associate pastor uh, here at First Scots, I began Romans chapter 12 uh, on uh, the first Sunday in February of 2020. Now, of course, you know that Pastor Mark, our senior pastor, usually preaches the morning service. Whenever he's away and I have opportunity to preach in the morning, I would come back to Romans. So it's taken me now um, three years to finish Romans, but here we are. Um, these final verses of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, they consist of greetings and then a doxology. We could call it um, doxology is just a, uh, an, 
English version of a Greek word that means praise, word of praise, word of glory. Uh, And that's how Paul closes his letter to the Romans. He signs off with praise to God. And we take these verses, although they're sort of, as a unit, they're sort of an odd mix. You've got these greetings and then this glorious doxology put together and, and all considered as a unit. They teach us that Jesus Christ is building his church. And he's doing so by drawing people to himself from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus Christ is building his church. He promised that he would. And we can take great comfort and find great confidence in that truth and in that fact that even to this day, Jesus is building his church and he's drawing people to himself from every tribe, every language, and every people and every nation. These verses teach us some important things about the gospel, and those will form the three points that we'll consider today. Uh, These verses teach us about the unity and the reach of the gospel. These verses teach us about the power of the gospel, and they describe and elucidate the chief end of the gospel. So let's consider, first of all, the unity and the reach of the gospel. The gospel creates, it produces unity, and it has power to reach anyone. In uh, the first part of Romans 16 that we looked at a month or two ago, chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, is just a bunch of Paul's greetings. Paul, as he finishes up his letter to the church in Rome, there are people in the church in Rome that he knew people whose paths he had crossed in times uh, previous to writing the letter, and so he's greeting many of them, lots of particular individuals he mentions by name. But as Paul was writing the letter to the church in Rome, he wasn't by himself. He wasn't alone. Uh, He had people with him. Paul always had traveling companions. Throughout his ministry, he Uh, wisely, uh, never just went off as a lone ranger. He had assistants. He had traveling companions with him. And he labored when anytime he parked anywhere for any significant amount of time, he was laboring among a congregation of people. So he is surrounded by brothers and sisters in his ministry. And that's why I think uh, that phrase that we find at the end of 2 Timothy is so poignant. Because again, Paul was always surrounded with helpers, with, with ministerial trainees, uh, and with brothers and sisters in Christ. But when you get to 2 Timothy, which is the last letter Paul wrote, and which he wrote not too long before his death by execution, um, he said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. It's almost heartbreaking to read. That's one of very, very few occasions that Paul was all alone. As he wrote the letter to the church in Rome, he had lots of people with him, and now those people are sending their greetings to the church there in Rome. They, they, they convey greetings from the brothers that were with Paul. And some of them, as we read those names, you might think, yeah, I recognize the name Timothy. Not so sure about any of the rest of these. Well, who were they? Are they people we know from anywhere else in Scripture? Uh, what information do we have about some of these people? Well, Timothy, of course, is... Uh, uh, the quintessential man who needs no introduction. Two books of the Bible bear his name because Paul wrote letters to this young man. Uh, Timothy was Paul's protege. 
when, when Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey, he recognized this young man is called to gospel ministry. And so he brought Timothy under his wing. He helped train Timothy. And Timothy went on to become a pastor and pastored some of the very important churches in the first century uh, Church of Christ. Um, he, in fact, he, he followed Paul as pastor in at least one or two of those congregations. So he had a very important ministry. But then we come to Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Uh, Paul describes these men as his kinsmen. And uh, most scholars think that by calling them that, he's not saying that these are my close relatives, these aren't brothers or cousins or something like that. But when he calls them kinsmen, he's saying to the church that he's writing to, that these, these men are fellow Jews. They are my countrymen, in other words. And um, so... <clears throat> Uh, we don't know much about Lucius. There is a Lucius in Acts 13.1. Uh, when Paul was at the church in Antioch, it says there were prophets in that church, and it names several of them, one of whom was Lucius. And then uh, Jason. Maybe the same Jason that's mentioned in Acts 17. Why don't you turn to Acts 17 with me? Uh, because it's very possible this is the same Jason, and it'll be... Neat, I think, and instructive for us to, to see what role Jason had in Paul's ministry and in the expansion of the church. Because uh, in Acts 17, starting at verse 5, this is in Thessalonica. Um, and Paul met with some very stiff resistance to his message in Thessalonica. Uh, he, he was preaching, and lots of people were persuaded by his message, it says. And then in verse 5, it says, But the Jews, who were jealous, uh, took some wicked men of the rabble, and they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So Jason kind of got into a tough spot, a tight spot uh, for the sake of the gospel, and that may be the very Jason who's sending greetings now in our passage from Romans. The uh, specific or exact name Sosipater doesn't occur anywhere else in Scripture. However, uh, in Acts 20, verse 4, there's a reference to Sopater uh, from Berea. And it wasn't uncommon for names. In, it's not uncommon for names in our culture, and it wasn't uncommon in ancient culture either for people's names to have slightly different variations in spelling. Or you people have nicknames. You remember Paul's uh, traveling companions and ministry of companions, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, well, in, in some par parts of Scripture, uh, Priscilla is called Prisca. It's a different form of the same name. And in fact, in, in Luke, uh, excuse me, in, um, well, I won't go there, but uh, basically, um, Sosipater here in Romans 16 may be Sopater of Berea. We don't know, and it's funny, when you, when you read commentaries, uh, how, how, adamantly certain some commentators are sure of one thing and how adamantly another commentator will say, no, no, it couldn't have been the same, but it doesn't really matter. Uh, there's a better and bigger and more important point for us to derive from all this, and we'll get there in just a moment. Look at verse 22 in our text. 
Tertius speaks of. Tertius, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, he's not claiming original authorship. Uh, when he says, I'm the one who wrote this letter, what he's saying is, I, Tertius, am the one who, as Paul dictated this letter, wrote it down for him. It's very uh, common for Paul and other uh, first century writers to dictate a letter uh, and then have an, what we call an amanuensis or a scribe uh, write it out. And here Tertius gets an opportunity to insert himself into the narrative and say, hey, everybody, it's Tertius here. Greetings. And then we've got uh, evidence of the fact that one of the things the gospel does is unifies people. It unifies people from some of the most varying and disparate and even conflicting backgrounds that you can imagine. Even Jesus' 12 disciples that he called, one of them uh, had been a zealot, you know, a, a strong uh, opponent of the Roman government and you know, the kind of people that would engage in insurrectionist sort of activities. And one of them, had been a tax collector for the Roman government, the very government that the zealot would have been seeking to overthrow. And yet they together, arm in arm, served the Lord Jesus Christ as disciples. You see the same kind of thing all over Scripture because the gospel unifies people from widely diverse demographics. Think about the fact, for instance, that in the early church especially, and even to some extent to this day, Many Christians were poor. Many of those who came to faith in Jesus Christ in the first century were people who were poor. And in some cases, people became poor because of their testimony, because they embraced the gospel and started to preach the Lord Jesus Christ. In some cases, they were ostracized from society, lost their jobs, perhaps. And so James wrote in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and drag you into court? That's James's uh, admonition to his readers. The point being that many of the first century Christians were poor people. Very few, very few of the first century Christians were prominent in, in society. And that's why Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, he says, Consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Most of them were just ordinary people unremarkable people, but nevertheless, the gospel did reach some who were wealthy. The gospel did reach some who were prominent, and what we see in our text is an example of that very thing. Gaius, look at him in verse 23 of our, of our text. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Gaius was obviously a man of means. Gaius, it seems, was a man who had a big house if he could host the whole church. Maybe most of, or all of, even, the church in Corinth at the time. So he was a man who had wealth. 
And he was hospitable with that wealth. The text mentions Erastus. Who is Erastus? He's the city treasurer of Corinth. Corinth was a major trade city. It was a major center of commerce. And this fellow Erastus is the treasurer of the city. He was a ranking official in the government. We don't know anything about Quartus. This is the only place in all of Scripture he's mentioned. Some have speculated, at least one person speculated, since Tertius, the name Tertius means third, and Quartus means fourth, maybe Tertius and Quartus were brothers, and Quartus was Tertius' younger brother. Uh, But again, all speculation, we don't know, and it doesn't really matter. The point is the gospel brings together people across a whole range of demographics, a whole range of categories. We saw evidence of that in Stuttgart. That church in Stuttgart was the most diverse church I've ever seen in my life. And in the picture on our computer desktop at home, there's a snapshot of our final worship service uh, before Hillary and I came back to the States. And I look at that congregation, and I see people from Asia, I see people from Africa, I see people from Europe, I see people from Canada, I see people from America, drawn together by the gospel. One in Christ. So the gospel has this unifying effect, but it also can reach anyone. It can reach the poor, but it can reach the rich as well. It can reach the insignificant, but it can reach prominent members of society also. It can reach anyone. You've heard the expression, the, the long arm of the law. You know, that expression that kind of indicates that, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a criminal, you, the law is going to eventually catch up with you, right? Um, but the gospel has an infinitely longer arm than the law in any, any country does. The gospel can reach the lowest of the low. The gospel can reach the highest of the high. And the gospel can break the hardness of the heart of the most obstinate opponents. And who better to put forward as an example of that than Paul himself? Paul, who with all of his energy, all of his youthful vigor and theological zeal, trying to extinguish the church of Christ, and then the next thing he knows is he's a disciple. He's an apostle. He's a messenger of that very gospel he once tried to destroy. Or turn with me over to Philippians. Chapter 4. Greetings again. And in this section of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. See, by, within Paul's lifetime, the gospel had reached into the very household of the emperor. There's no stopping this gospel. It can get anywhere. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel, and believers are all one in Christ. That's the unity and the reach of the gospel. And it kind of prepares us for the second point, which is the power of the gospel. In the gospel, 
And through the gospel, according to our text this morning, God strengthens us. Look with me again at verse 25, just the first portion of it. In his doxology, Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel. I think too often people tend to think of the gospel and the effects of the gospel as being strictly invisible and intangible. But the gospel isn't just about the hereafter. It's not just about a a person going on with life as normal, but then it so happens that their eternal destiny now is different. The gospel is much, much more than that. The gospel has power. And the power of the gospel is a central idea in Paul's writing. The gospel doesn't just change your eternal destination. The gospel transforms people. As I mentioned, you know, if we're here at the end of Romans, we're very, very close to the beginning of 1 Corinthians. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me now. You might not even have to turn the page. I don't know in some Bibles. But um, 1 Corinthians contains yet another one of Paul's declarations of the power of the gospel, the power of the word of the cross, as he puts it here. So in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness, in other words. To those who are perishing, I think it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. It's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. So then Paul goes on to sort of almost taunt uh, his, his generation. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is powerful. It has power to change lives, to transform. Now, in this doxology, Paul goes on to say that this gospel that he preaches was formerly, in one sense, a mystery. It was hidden. It says it was kept secret for long ages. In other words, even generations before Moses, there was a sense in which, and an extent to which, this message of the one who was coming to crush the head of the serpent was hidden. Moses, when God raised him up to liberate the people of Israel from bondage in Egypt, uh, He ministered and he wrote the first five books of Holy Scripture in in rough uh, numbers around 1500 B.C. And at least according to biblical chronology, 
there had been prior to that roughly uh, 2,500 years of human history. 25, yeah, 2,500 years of human history, going all the way back to Adam. Abraham was roughly 2,000. Again, rough numbers here, but 2,000 B.C. Moses was 1,500, and that's when the Word of God first began to be inscripturated for us. People would have had the truth. The, the, the faithful line of Seth would know the truth as parents conveyed it by word of mouth. And who knows, maybe even they wrote down some, some things, but God's word wasn't breathed out by the Holy Spirit until 1500. It didn't begin to be breathed out until 1500 B.C. And so we can say that prior to that time, it was, it was hidden, kept secret. And then even after God liberated his people from Egypt and brought them into the land, and he sent them prophets, and these prophets and the psalmists began to write God's word as the Spirit breathed it out. Even then, the message was confined, by and large, to this one nation, to the nation of Israel. So it was kept secret, and it was sort of hidden, preserved within that one nation. It was disclosed, it says, through the prophetic writings, is what our text in Romans says. So the prophetic writings would start with Moses and then go on to the other prophets, the former prophets, as they're sometimes called, the psalmists, and then the latter prophets. I've just finished my series through the minor prophets. That They would have been in view here when Paul mentions the prophetic writings. But then you've got the New Testament prophets, among whom was Paul, the gospel writers, and the rest. But ultimately, you've got the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Moses spoke, particularly when when God, through Moses, said, uh, the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. To him you must listen. He was talking of Christ. So God's ultimate revelation, God's final revelation, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate prophet, which is why when Pastor Mark uh, preached through Hebrews uh, just very recently, in the opening verses of the book of Hebrews, speaks of how God in many ways in past times spoke to the fathers through visions, dreams, and all that. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his Son. So now, his Son, and the gospel of his Son has been revealed. He's been made known to all the nations. Now it's not confined any longer to one little nation in the Mediterranean. Now it's gone out to the peoples of the earth. Why? Verse 26 says why. To bring about the obedience of faith. Because formerly in times past, when this gospel was hidden, when it was kept secret, all of us, as Isaiah said, like sheep had gone astray. Everyone in the whole world was out there just seeking his own way. That's what we were doing before the gospel was revealed. And every man and woman, every, every time a person is born into this world, they are born into that condition. They are born in a state of rebellion against God. They're born in a state of self-seeking disobedience to the Almighty. 
And apart from Christ, that's where we all remain. But the gospel calls people to repentance. And it not only calls them to repentance, it brings them. So Jesus said, no one can come unto the Father unless the Spirit who sent me draws him. That's what the gospel does. The gospel transforms. When we were in Romans 12, we read, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Can you transform yourself? No, you can't, but the gospel can, and the gospel does. The gospel changes people inwardly, gives us new affections, causes us to desire different things than we used to desire. Ezekiel describes it this way. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God changes us from the inside out through the gospel. That's what the gospel does. And so that same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, lifted him out of the tomb, that power is at work in you who have put your trust in Christ. That power helps you to do battle with sin. That power helps you to put to death what is earthly in you and to live a life of evangelical obedience to the glory of Christ our Savior. And so when Paul in this text wrote of him who is able to strengthen you, he is writing of God himself. It is through the very power of God that you live the Christian life. Divine power is available to you in the gospel. What more do you need? Well, that brings us to our final point, the chief end of the gospel. The letter to the Romans is often called uh, Paul's magnum opus, if you're familiar with that term. This is considered by most theologians and Bible scholars to be Paul's most important letter. And it's almost self-evident, but many influential theologians across the ages have been strongly, strongly influenced by the letter to Rome that Paul wrote. There was a, um, there was a bishop, one of, one of the great theologians of church history, an African bishop by the name of Augustine. He was converted by reading Romans. He's still to this day considered one of the great theologians in, of all church history. And what God used to grab hold of that man and transform him and make him the great pillar of the church was Paul's letter to the Romans. One of the great preachers of the early church, John Chrysostom, he would have Romans read to him every day, or excuse me, every week. Each week he would have someone read the entirety of Paul's letter to the Romans to him. And I'm sure you're aware that it was uh, was through the message of Romans that, that Martin Luther perhaps was converted, but certainly came to understand justification by grace through faith. And then he went on to be the catalyst to spark the Protestant Reformation, to bring the churches back to the pure gospel. John Wesley could go on and on. Important people in church history who were influenced strongly by this letter. And 
part of the reason Romans is so profound and so worth our continual attention is because it, all the major themes of Scripture are brought together right in this one book, right in this one letter. And it contains the Bible's most comprehensive presentation of the gospel. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school. And as I also mentioned in Sunday school, the book as a whole is divi- it's divided into two major sections. If you want to think of a simple outline of Romans, chapters 1 through 11 are basically doctrinal, mostly, and then chapters 12 to the end are basically practical. But both sections, the end of the first section and the end of the book here, they culminate with doxology. They culminate with praise to God. Paul is summing up here in our text that we're looking at this morning, and it reminds me a little bit of uh, Solomon when he wrote Ecclesiastes. Chapter after chapter of Solomon's observations about life in a fallen world, and then when he comes to the end, he says, here's the conclusion of the matter. In other words, think about everything I've written. Here's the sum of it. Here's the conclusion. And Paul is concluding here in much the same way. And how does he sum up this magnum opus of his? How does he bring to a conclusion this grand epistle? He brings it to conclusion with glory to God. Verse 27, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So I ask the question, what is the gospel all about? What's the gospel for? Or to borrow language of our catechism, what is the gospel's chief end? Ever thought about that? Let me say something that might come as a shock. The chief end of the gospel is not your salvation. The chief end of the gospel is not the forgiveness of sins. The chief end, chief purpose of the gospel is not to deliver sinners from eternity in the flames of hell. The chief end of the gospel is not securing eternal life for men and women and children. I hope you see where I'm going with this. Because the gospel does indeed do all of those things. Praise the Lord that it does. And see, there I gave it away, didn't I? The gospel is about all of those things. It's for all of those things, and it truly does all of those things, but God gets all the glory for all of those things, and that is the chief end of the gospel. The glory of God. Soli Deo Gloria. God, when he's proclaiming through his prophet Ezekiel that he was going to deliver his people, that he was going to be merciful to them. This rebellious and stubborn people, he said through Ezekiel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Or as he says in the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise, nor my praise to carved idols. And as we prayed earlier today, His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen? So Jesus Christ is building His church. He's doing it by drawing people to Himself. 
from every tribe and language and people and nation. The world is full of a people who need the gospel. They need that power. And how are they going to get access to it? How will they get access to the power of this gospel? We preach Christ. That's how. We proclaim him crucified, risen, ascended, and seated at the right hand of God the Father. We preach Jesus Christ as the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for its infinite reach. We thank you how it unites us. We thank you for its power. And we thank you, Lord, that you have ordained a gospel that describes all glory and places all glory exactly where it belongs, with you. Help us, Lord, day by day, to glorify you, to delight in you. And may we each, through